called out of casino. We'd been in there for about, I think, I think we were in casino for about, in casino and the whole show for about six weeks. After Casino. The Courage and Valor podcast is the story of ordinary New Zealanders who served and fought to liberate Italy from fascist and Nazi rule in World War II. Having pulled out of the ruins of Casino and had a few days to recuperate, the New Zealand infantry were separated from their artillery and army units of the division in order to go into a new phase of battle, mountain warfare. Whilst other Allied units held on to the gains the New Zealanders had made in the town of Casino, the Kiwi infantry moved east and up into the steep terrain of the mountains. They moved into what was known as the Belvedere to Rally Sector, around 19 kilometres or 11 miles from Casino. The main objective was to oust the Germans from the village of Torelli, which stood at an elevation of 2,969 feet or 905 metres above sea level. Just getting there was half the mission. Ah, and when, when, when we were relieved from uh, being uh, in close pro proximity, well, where we'd been when the uh, second bombing, had, uh, they told us that our brain carriers were coming up and they were going to be below us uh, uh, at uh, 10 o'clock at night. To, to evacuate us uh, to... Well, I'd had about a fortnight in there then, and I think the platoon had about three weeks, which was usually... Uh, it was longer than most times in the forward area. <coughs> uh, it seemed to take forever for that bloody 10 o'clock to arrive, and we had to carry all these bits of mortars as well as our own bloody gear, and if you got a rifle and a bloody barrel of a mortar, three bits to a mortar, a, a base plate, a bipod and a barrel and they're all bloody awkward and they're all about 40 pounds, the barrel's more and it's about uh, over three inches in diameter and it's about uh, four foot six along I think. Uh, uh, so we were lumping all this bloody stuff and got on the bloody brink carriers. Uh, I don't know how many of them were, about four of them I suppose. They'd be, they hadn't been with us. They'd, they'd come up to um, to drop us and to get a, get us away again. And um, <coughs> well, we got in this bloody car oh, and we we're heading for home. And ah, oh, bloody marvellous! We got about most from from here to Pitchgrove Road up the road. When we came under, uh, the road was blocked. I didn't know what was what was all about, and uh, we hardly stopped when we came under heavy shell fire, and we we were going along the road here, and there was a bit of a bank about four feet high, and the shells were coming out on the road. They were pretty close to us. The enemy were firing from there. 
and my surviving bloody mate Ray, he gets out of the Bren carrier and he dives down between the carrier and this bank. So I did the same bloody thing. The rest of the blokes just squatted down low in it. <coughs> the driver, Jim Hunt, told me afterwards, he said, he went forward like that and crouched down as low as he could, as much as he could. And he had a rifle in a holder that was vertical and it was almost at his back. And a bit of shrapnel hit it and flattened the rifle and, and the... Uh, yeah, flattened the rifle and, and it was about that far away from him. And directly behind him, Sid Williams was, uh, when we went back into the carrier after the firing, Sid wasn't talking. Oh, we found some blood. It was dark, he didn't know what it was all. So we took off and we we hadn't gone far when we had to go down a, a diversion track. And uh, we heard an English voice, back up, back up. GOC 4th Indian Division coming through. Our sergeant says, Fuck the general. We've got New Zealand wounded aboard. We hear a cultured voice say, Back up, driver, back up. And so we went through. <coughs> oh, thank you, sir. Mm. And we hadn't gone far when we came to, a, uh, I think they told us it was a dressing station. Of, uh, we got there, and the sergeant and I got out and went in, and the, it was about 11 o'clock at night, I suppose, and the, the orderlies were having a, a break, a tea break. And they, they weren't in much, uh, much, much of a hurry to do much. And so the sergeant gave him a bloody rip up. <laughs> One of his better ones. So the two blokes went out, and they sauntered back in and they said, well, there's not much we can do for Sid. He's gone. He'd been hit in the juggler and he'd bled to death. And we didn't know about it. We were back in, to our rest area outside Casino. Uh, had showers at the American showers, which was quite an experience compared to ours. All nice hot water and that sort of thing. And, and then we went up to, went up to, uh, up into the rest area and we did a spell up on the uh, spell up we relieved uh, I think it was the British I'm not quite sure up on Hollage. yeah on on the hill and we relieved them uh, we moved up to a place up to, uh, up to called Torelli. It was up in the mountains to the north of Casino, and I've never had such a, a, a climb. We had to climb up. Climbing that bloody mountain. I, as platoon sergeant, um, we relieved the Polish <coughs> troops. That's right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was sent ahead to sight the place out the night before the troops moved in. So we went in and right back, virtually not far from the town itself, um, but further around the mountain a little bit. Um, and I was met there by a guide and we went up this hill. 
hill. It's a mountain, not a hill. Uh, oh, I don't know, several thousand feet, I should think, uh, up to the top. And they were Polish troops. And so uh, my job was to find their positions and sight them out and so on, and then be back down uh, at the bottom of the hill the next night to meet uh, at the platoon and guide them up, you see. And so um, <laughs> you couldn't understand. These Polish people couldn't speak English. Um, they, they were living in a bit of a house and they had a few uh, places where they had sentries out. It was actually a fairly quiet sector. Um, and um, so I, I spent all day um, just with the food I'd brought with me. They never offered me any food. And went back down after it got dark and waited for our platoon to arrive, which they duly did. <coughs> and then um, back, <coughs> back up the mountain again. And I hadn't had much sleep the night before, of course, with climbing this lighted mountain and, and you know, deep, eh? finding, finding all the positions we were to occupy. And uh, then down the mountain, so, and up again with the men. And I tell you what, it was steep. We were clawing our way to get up in places. And uh, some of the men packed up, couldn't go any further. Um, and so uh, I finished up carrying, as well as my Tommy gun, I, I was carrying a, at least one other rifle. Um, and I, I got finally got up to the top and we relieved these Polish troops. And um, um, they buggered off. Uh, and I was totally exhausted. Mm. Uh, absolutely, totally exhausted. There was uh, this house they'd been in, there was a bed there, uh, no bedding on it, just a wire wove mattress, and I lay down on that um, after I'd got the platoon into the right position and so on. Um, and I went to sleep. And the next day they said they had tried to wake me up uh, to you know, to take my turn as sentry. And a couple of the guys said that actually lifted me up and dropped me several times onto this <laughs> wire mattress. Um, and I was just so out to it that uh, I never woke up at all. <laughs> so, yeah, sometimes you could get so exhausted that it was only your mental power that kept you going. You know, you, you think... You think you, you're done. You think I can't take another step, but that's when your mind clicks in, and and you know you do it. Um, strange to say, but there's a lot of times, a lot of, an awful lot of uh, tiredness and and of course the anguish and and uh, the stress and so on at the same time. Uh, near Casino, there's a snow mountain, Mount Cairo. It would be, uh, <coughs> it would be five miles away from Casino. Could have been more. And we went up one night, 
the second ammunition company carried us up and Jim Bennett and uh, George Barnett from Hamilton drove the half the platoon that I was in. I, I rode up with them, two blacks from Hamilton that I've been to school with, both of them. And uh, they they went as far as they could go and we came to a very, very steep, bloody uh, foothill, I suppose, of Mount Cairo, and uh, they dropped us. And we slept the night there, and the next night we climbed up this bloody foothill and got into a house, a very old building, it was on the side of a very steep face, and uh, we actually slept uh, at ground level and there was a, a room above us and another room, a bit of a room up there, but it was all built on the side of a very steep face. And underneath us was, uh, a, a, there was a room underneath us, it was below gr ground. In Italy they only get rain like in uh, most of the Middle East, in about October, October or November and that's it. So they catch the rain, and, and they had a. We, uh, the room we were in. <coughs> oh, this tank was below it, and it had plastered walls, and they caught caught the caught the uh, uh, rain there, and that had to do them for the eleven months. It was dry, and we went down into this thing, and our mortar bombs. They they. They're covered, you had three of them in a little pannier carrier thing, you could carry three in each hand, there's 30 pounds in each one, and um, well, the bombs were 10 pounds each, so you had a 30 pound weight in each. And these container things were a bloody nuisance. If you left them lying around near a mortar position, aerial reconnaissance would uh, pick out where your bloody mortar was. So we uh, hit on the idea of putting them in this bloody dry thing there, so some of us went down and we were down there and they were sending them down and shoot to us and we were stacking them up out of, well out of sight and it was good. <coughs> but um, that was Torelli and uh, we'd only just got there when we had a fire order and Ray, this bloody survivor, and me, that the bloke that went out and served the gun with no pants on, we were in the same gun again, and uh, <coughs> we had a gun, and there was still only two of us. We shot out, and there was a, it was a little structure, it was a pig pen, and there was a, a bit, of, it had about four feet, high walls and three-sided walls around, and our mortar was in there. <coughs> and it was good, it was a bloody rock walls, they were about that thick. And, and But um, we'd come in through the, the hut part of it, and to get to where the gun was, you had to get down, and, uh, and there was an opening about like that. Well, we got, in, uh, got out there and we carried out our fire order, and uh, 
bloody counter battery stuff started to come over and Ray was a survivor. He shot through this bloody thing and he got out and he ran about 30 metres down to the house, down rough, and he went like a hammer's a hell. But I was delayed. The uh, <coughs> barrage they put down uh, got too heavy and I had to stay. I stayed with the bloody uh, mortar itself. I thought well, it was the safest place. And when I got in, uh, to the house when the firing died down. I was shaking like a leaf. And someone said, we counted the shells that uh, the enemy fired at you blokes. And he said, how many do you reckon it was? I said, I don't know, it seemed like hundreds. He said, yeah, well, you're right, there was 200. 200. And uh, I tried to roll a cigarette. <laughs> I couldn't. And I lit a, lit a tailor made, and I think I smoked three of them in five minutes, and I was no better. And I thought, uh, then I got wild. And <clears throat> who'd ever been in this bloody house before us uh, that had American uh, mortars there, and they were the same. Uh, caliber as ours. Oddly enough, the Germans, the British, the Americans, and the Italians all had 81 millimeters. Which uh, uh, I would have said uh, uh, it would have been 75 millimeters, but they said it was 81. And <coughs> and uh, there was a hell of a lot of ammunition, uh, American ammunition, in this. Uh, uh, well, up, up at the, in the top room area, there was a little platform, and they, they had a gun up there, and they had a lot of ammunition stacked around it, <coughs> and they had another room down like, like where we were sleeping, and there was a lot of ammunition in that. Anyway, the enemy hit the bloody uh, top one, and this ammunition was going off for a couple of bloody hours and making life a bit difficult for us and <coughs> and uh, I suggested to the sergeant that we fire that Italian uh, that American ammunition on the enemy I had been in a mortar platoon in New Zealand in the territorials for a while in 1939 before the war and uh, the down the bottom of the barrel and those things there was a firing pin sticking upwards and you dropped your bomb down and it and it <coughs> your firing pin hit the shotgun cartridge which was in the base of the bomb, mortar bomb and it set set things going and uh, the first world war mortar that we trained on had a different firing pin from ours and I told our boss about it I said uh, if we had one of those firing pins, it was a thing about an inch in diameter and about that long, and, and screwed into place. I said, if we had one of those, in our, we had a little satchel to, for tools for our mortar, and uh, I said, if we had that firing pin in there, at any time, if there was any German or enemy ammunition around, we could use it. And the boss thought it was a good idea, and of course he, he would have told them that he had thought of it, I suppose. And uh, we, we 
we had six guns, we had six firing pins, and uh, we told that uh, I had a mate in the 21st uh, Mora platoon, and the officer there had been trained us in Hopper Hopper. Uh, we uh, we had this, and so we had a lot of this ammunition, and we said, well, we don't want the next lot of ammunition to go get fire, um, caught alight. So we were on a ridge, and it was very, very steep, and went up, I don't know, about 400 meters, feet above us, it might have been more. And we looked over a big valley, and on the, on the slope to what we were facing, there was a big building on a crossroads. It wasn't a, it was a track, really. It wasn't, a, I don't think vehicles would have been able to go on these roads in the mountain. <coughs> But it was a big sort of house that had been added to, and, and, and I, I, heaven knows what it was. But it didn't have a red cross or anything on it, but it obviously it'd be a headquarters. So from our uh, observation post to the top there, well, it was about the only target. So we uh, lined up on it, and then we got all the guns. Uh, we probably had the six guns there. Uh, at a command, we fired and we got rid of most of this bloody American ammunition. They had bombs that long and they had bombs that long. And uh, so one would have been 10 pounds and one would have been 20 pounds or I suppose something like that. And <coughs> we got rid of a hell of a lot, a lot of it. And uh, at night, of course. And uh, next morning there was a big red cross sign on the roof of it. Well, whether it was. Sure, they would have treated wounded there because it was the only shelter that was obvious in the area. But um, uh, <clears throat> I don't know where our officer was. He was usually with us, but battalion headquarters wasn't... We didn't quite know how far away it was. Oh, yes, we did. At night, we had to go down the mountain to pick up mortar ammunition and it was a bastard of a job. What they did, they, they to get provisions up there was what they call them uh, a road which was under enemy fire all the way and they could only go up there at night. In fact they had big tarpaulins over to you know, camouflage the road and what they did they used to bring the provisions up from the depot up to there to a point it, where it was unloaded onto mules, and then the mules used to cart them through the mound. Then the men used to pick up from the mule to, up to the forward positions, and uh, I, I, I remember that we uh, we we getting up to before we did our climb, we, we we were shelled on this on this. It wasn't very pleasant because they they must have had an idea we were we were coming around. A horrible rough track. It was only about that wide on the side of a very steep. Place. and it got shelled and when the shells landed very close to you uh, on a steep steep face a new track was there if a bomb landed below you it exploded upwards but y you were lying there you were pretty safe and if it landed above you the, the Explosion from the water goes upwards. Well, it goes out sideways too. It's a daisy cutter. 
25 pounders, their explosion used to just get up like that. Anyway, when they were very close to me and we'd stop and lie down, my my strength used to just go. I felt as though my stomach had turned to water and I'd lie there and I'd go to pick these bloody things up. <laughs> I could hardly manage them. And every night we had this bloody carrying party about 10 o'clock at night. We'd get a phone call and there was food coming up. And no, oh, well, there was for the battalion. We were cooking for ourselves. And uh, uh, I hated it. And, and a Maori boy with us, he said, well, I only got some other equipment and he bloody well carried 60 pounds in each hand. And he said, I'm not making two bloody trips. He said, I'm making one. And he got a bloody horrible hernia out of it. Mm. And of course, you had to stay there. You couldn't, uh, they wouldn't evacuate you for that. We had two blokes that got hernias because we did a lot of heavy lifting. And uh, both of them had to stay with us for about a month before they could get for treatment. It must have been bloody terrible for them. <coughs> anyway, uh, we were taking turns, two of us would go up to the OP. And the drill was you went up before daylight and there was troops in the forward in a defended line. So we had to report to them and they told us where the OP was. So we got up there about four o'clock in the bloody morning in the dark and they said, well, there's a, a, a telephone wire on the ground here leading from us and it goes out it's about 25 yards out in the no man's land and it's it's a raised thing a wall <coughs> it's like a bloody um, four wall looked like a bloody grave uh, above ground and in it uh, it was about that wide and it must have been about five feet long and it had two of us in there and there was a Tommy gun, I think, and a, a wireless and a phone, which we were in, we were in touch with the platoon to give them fire orders. And so Ray and I were in there, and uh, we, we got in there, <coughs> and and there was a gap in, in in the walled rock. You didn't have to put your head over the top. That was good, and we were able to look at uh, down this valley and. It was a, down, and there was a flat bit, and then it went down again, and we weren't in this bloody thing long. It was still dark, and we heard voices. The blokes, the blokes moving around the rock, and you, you, you boot like bloody noises, and and the voices weren't English. And uh, I said something to Brian. He said. Anyway, they bloody well came within about 10 metres of us and uh, pissed off. Uh, if we'd shot them, uh, well, we would have probably got out of it. We'd have had to get the hell out of it <coughs> before daylight. Or if, if, if they were still there in daylight, uh, well, we would have had to go out and see if they were alive or something, and God knows what decisions we'd have. <coughs> anyway, the, the hunter went away, and, and then we were sitting in there, 
And then we had another visitor. It was a bloody snake. And he was sitting there, and there, and there was no room for you to move much. I couldn't even draw my bayonet. And I said to Ray, what do we do with this bastard? He said, we ignore it. I think he had a look at him. He was in and he was spitting with his bloody tongue and he was coming in and out among the rocks there. He moved around a bit and then he, then he pissed off and we were very pleased to see him go. <coughs> anyway, the first morning after I'd been, um, stu um, I'd been caught out of the bloody <coughs> um, the gun and I had those 200 rounds dropped and out in the yard there was a round low wall about that high and it was about six feet in diameter and it was a well and I sauntered out there and was having a look at this well when over came a bloody mortar stonk so I the thing was round like this so I lay myself down <laughs> and just uh, hug this bloody wall and these bloody mortars were landing very close and when they stopped I belted uh, uh, about 25 metres back to the bloody house and someone someone said well that'll teach you to go wandering around in the bloody daylight and I said well we didn't know that it was the backyard was in full view of the enemy but I wouldn't I won't need to be reminded anymore and uh, Anyway, we, uh, and d during the bombing, one of the bombs had gone down our well, and that had stirred up the bloody thing, and it was all bloody muddy. <coughs> and of course it was my fault. Uh, so the next day we were up in this bloody OP, and we're looking down, and I see down below us, there's a little bit of a flat land, and there's a bloody ring there. I said to Ray, what say we put a bloody mortar bomb down that bloody uh, thing? He said, shit, a mortar bomb's not that accurate here. He said, you could fire a thousand and they mightn't go get one down there. I said, well, it'd be fun to try, wouldn't it? And stuff up their bloody water supply. So I, I persuaded him, I suppose, to, sh to shut me up. He bloody said, yeah. So we rang through to the platoon and told them the, the target. <coughs> And uh, uh, during the firing, we fired about six rounds, and one of the rounds we didn't see land. And I said to Ray, that's gone down the bloody well. Oh, bloody rubbish, he said. It's impossible to do that. It's just bloody rubbish. He said, that thing's only about six feet in diameter. The next minute I see a, a bloody smoke ring coming out of the well. <laughs> Shit, he said. It's bloody wonderful, bloody wonderful. Anyway, we, we'd gone up about four in the morning, and by about 2.30, we wanted to relieve ourselves. Well, you could piss in the tin and throw it away, but we wanted to have a crap, both of us. And we couldn't get out because we were under, we were on a pinnacle and it was in full view, and. <coughs> would have given away the position of this bloody uh, OP and uh, we had to wait until about 9.30 at night when it was dark to get out of there 
and we were both bloody well pretty pretty frantic by then. Well, we got, got up and we took off at a bit of a run and uh, I shut down and, uh, and had a crap near the house and my mate, he got down there before me and he'd had a crap just out of the bloody OP and still got down there before me. God, he was a uh, Ray Corley. And we're up there, and I was in a, in a sort of sanger there. We used to see, sleep in the sanger in the daytime and move up into the front at nighttime into positions. And uh, we used to go out on patrol. I lost quite a few men there. Uh, one night, well, we're up there, and uh, I'm in there, in the, I was in the trench with another chap and uh, heard movement out there, so the chap that I was, that was with me, he, he actually hadn't, I don't, I think he was a, hadn't been in the front line very much because I think he was a cook or something and they brought them up as, as reinforcements. And he was, he was in the bottom of the trench and I'm there and I thought I thought heard something, so I threw a couple of hand grenades out and, and uh, nothing sort of happened, so. And it wasn't very long, the sergeant comes along and he who the hell threw those hand grenades? <laughs> I, thought, I thought I heard something out there. <laughs> and uh, so all the way I went back, to, been there all night, went back to my singer. Hello, no singer. It got a direct hit from a shell. So and all my gear was all gone uh, that I had there, my pack and any other odds and ends. I had to dig out. So that was another escape I had. I was a bit like a cat. I had, didn't have too many lives left. Anyway, we was on this mountain and bloody big rocks. We dug under, uh, I dug under a rock and put a tarpole uh, bivvy over it and my mate and I used to sleep under it. And uh, two knives on the other side and he was on the other side of it. Way across the gully, the hunting must have had a, a no pip and uh, the wind blowing and the officer's um, bivy was flapping in the wind and the jugger over there must have thought there was somebody moving and I fired a shot. It must have been a, a calibre of that big round. I heard, the, I heard the gun go off and just about immediately the bullet hit the rock and uh, this pursuing officer got a lot of shells, uh, rock splinters in his back. There was uh, Rick's money. Yeah. It, uh, we're going out and then we've got to go out on a fighting patrol. And I said to our sergeant, some bugger's going to get hurt tonight. I said, it's not our turn to do a fighting patrol. I said, we've done so many patrols since we've been here. I said, well, one of the other companies should have come. Oh, yeah, he said, I know that. But he said, we've got the orders, so we've got to go. I said, yeah, right -o. So we went out after dark on this patrol, and I don't know whether I got on the skyline or what, but I was in a little bit of a dish with my bloody head on the big, against a big rock. The bloody Spandau bullets started flying at me. And they were dancing off this bloody rock. And I thought, gee, boy, if you get out of this, you're going to be lucky. 
and I turned the Bren over with my foot. I had a, at this stage, I had a brand new Bren. And uh, I turned it, and I just raised myself up off me, with my left arm to grab the bloody rifle to take off, and a bloody shell landed beside me. Just felt as though I got a kick in the guts. And uh, our barrage was supposed to open up at 10 o'clock. And I thought, well, if I get into a shell hole, I'll be all right because they said the shell won't land in the same place twice. And I got in the shell hole all right, but my arm was buggered and I got cold and I couldn't get out, couldn't get up. And uh, I heard somebody walking and uh, I thought, well, I may as well be taken to prison and lay here and die. So I called out and there was a, two of her own men getting back and uh, they got me out and got me back to just about to where we were bivied. I had a particular mate. When I joined the platoon in Egypt, he and I hit it off rather well. And he'd been a commercial traveller and he was full of bullshit. Trevor Atkinson. And uh, we went down to Marty and we bought a bottle of uh, um, olive oil, a beer bottle, bottle for, for six piastres. And so we came back into the hut, there was about 30 of us in the hut, and we were getting this stuff and we were rubbing it on our head. The blokes were saying, what are you doing? I said, oh, this is olive oil, it's the best bloody olive oil. It's the best possible stuff you can have for your hair. There isn't anything bloody better than that. Uh, a base of all the bloody, uh, <laughs> of course the commercial travellers, all hair oils, the base is olive oil. And away he goes on his sales plan. And I said, can we try it? I said, we can do better than that. He said, if any of you blokes have got a, a hair oil container or a small bottle, you can have, have a, a bottle full of it for five acres. We sold about ten bottles of this bloody stuff out of this quart bottle and then we told them that we'd paid six acres for the quart bottle. <laughs> so this was sort of bloody bullshit that was going on and we, and, and we could sort of ad lib and uh, we, we were having a time. Anyway, <coughs> Trevor Atkinson, he, uh, we were in this Torelli position and uh, one lot of us was occupying one part of the house and they were occupying another and there was no way through. You had to go outside to get to the other crowd so we didn't go there much. But Trevor was playing bridge with some of these blokes that morning and he had to do something inside because he couldn't wander around inside and he said, well, I must go out and wash the body now. And he walked out the bloody door and he was just getting out the door when a shell landed unexpectedly, there hadn't been any others, and it landed in a position where none had landed before, took half his head off. And uh, his younger brother had just turned up in the battalion a few days, a few, about a, I don't know, about a fortnight before or something. A nice black, good black. Uh, and he was a likeable black. He said, I don't know, he said, when I came over to see you blokes, he said, uh, uh, well, they started dropping bombs around me. And he said, I didn't know whether to run or to lie down. So he said, I lay down 
And he said, the, the, the bomb seemed to come pretty f close to me. I said, what's that on your face? Well, he said, a bomb landed near me and that was some mud that came up and smacked me in the face. Well, he mu it must have been pretty close to this bloody bomb. He said, so I didn't know whether I was doing the right thing or not. <laughs> I said, you're still here, mate. And uh, he came up to me and he said, uh, when Trevor was killed, what was the state of his wounds? And I said, uh, well, he was killed instantly with a hit in the head. That's as much as you need to know. Uh, eventually we went back out of, out of there. We were taken over by the Maoris. It was quite a steep hill. I don't know what they called it. Uh, I'm trying to think. Anyhow, we were relieved by the Maoris. The Maoris come up there, and to be relieved by, by the Maoris was quite an experience. They came up there. One chap would have the have a part of the Bren gun. He'd have most likely the barrel, and another joker would have the have the ammunition, and somebody else would have the button. And so they come up there and. and Real Maori style, you know. You got this man, hey? You got this, and so so we eventually got relieved by these jokers, uh, and we went back. And I was a bit at this stage. There'd been fighting going on <coughs> casino for quite a long time, and just been we went we went there in March, and eventually the casino was taken by the poles. And we moved up to an area north of Casino, and it was there that they got us together and they wanted to do a reenactment re on the Casino battle. So they round up some of these some of the chaps that had been already in there, and they went to a little town outside, further down past Casino, and we did a reenactment of the Battle of Casino. Um, had one tank with us. Uh, I, I had my brain and we did this attack for Path A News, which was one of the uh, photo crowd at that stage. Is that the famous footage that you see in a lot of documentaries of New Zealanders yeah, that's, with the that's, tank and the rubble? Yeah, yeah that's yeah. us. That's yeah. us. Yeah. Wow. So I always assumed that that was taken no, during the... No. <laughs> they never are. <laughs> How would you expect a cameraman to be in the middle of the fighting? Yeah. Actually, as Nobody we were going, <laughs> uh, one there was a cameraman as we went down Casino Road when we were going into Casino. Yeah. I don't know whether you knew there was a cameraman yeah. there. Was a and correspondent. He, yeah, correspondent. He got hit. Yeah, he got. Yeah, yeah. yeah. he got hit. Yeah. Yeah. Got yeah, got killed. Yeah, got killed. Yeah, on the Caruso Road. Road. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that was about the nearest I ever saw a cameraman, cameraman in casino. The faked battle Harry and others performed for both movie and still cameras is what is now commonly seen in all the books and documentaries claiming to be the New Zealanders during the casino battles. Uh, the officer who was in charge of our, our uh, motor transport here in New Zealand, up at the Hauraki's, he was in charge of the transport in 2-4 Battalion. And he ran to me one day and he said, Hoppy, what are you doing? And he said, how would you like to come to transport? 
I said, oh, I can't get my bag packed quick enough. So I ended up back in transport, 2-4 battalion transport, and I was given a little 1,500 weight, and I was attached to the Sikh platoon, and, which was quite a good position, really. We st still saw action, more or less. I used to go out with the SIGs and, and lay lines and, and uh, get into mischief. Actually, in the wintertime, it was quite good. I, I hadn't very, didn't have very much to do, so I set myself up a still, and I used to boil up the wine and catch the stuff at the other end, which was just about pure alcohol. I'd add a bit of uh, juice or something to that, and we used to give it to the boys to drink. But the worst of it was that I had to keep tasting it to see that it wasn't too strong. But at the end of each day, you know what Harry was like. So, <laughs> uh, eventually we went, uh, quite a few skirmishes we went through. Well, we fought up in various places, Balsarano and uh, uh, the names just run together. But when we got to this valley, it was a rural area, Ooh, a little river there, and ooh, we camped alongside it, and uh, had a had a break before we went on to more. We went to a place, I think, uh, that we camped. But there was before a... we went into before they went into uh, San Michele. Yeah, there was another place. Uh, it had a high hill on it. Uh, and it was uh, something, oh, yeah, I yeah, know, we, we had, had quite a little skirmish there. Um, oh dear, the, the short Sora, hmm? Sora, was it Sora? Sora, yeah, Sora? yeah, yeah, but that was after. Where where was that place with the most what? gorgeous church? That the stonework is a sort of a greeny colour. Yeah, that was at Falls. Oh, God, magnificent building. Well, Sora, Sora wasn't before Saint Michael, was it? Yeah, I think was so. it? Yes, yeah. Oh. Eh? No, it wasn't, was it? Oh, I'm sure it was. <laughs> well, Anyhow, was that where, where, where we had that skirmish with the, uh, with the Germans there, and yeah, they did have a high hill with a with a name on it, with a, uh, a castle or something up there. Yeah, that's what I was thinking about. And it had a river running through it. Yeah, could have done. And we waited there until they got the bridge across. <laughs> Long time ago, Harry. That's right. Yeah, yeah I remember that. But that's where I had my other life. I was driving my truck then. I was driving the truck oh, then. Oh, you were in that. Yeah. Oh, Christ, that was my one dream to drive the truck. Yeah, I was, uh, that's when I was driving for the Sinks. And we went there, we were waiting for the... And that's when the partisans come out of... Oh, yeah out of the hills. Some women, partisans, come out of the hill. We were waiting there and then we went down this road. It wasn't a road, it was a damn track. And the artillery were on our right and 
and the Germans opened up on the artillery. We were too close to, too close together. And I remember going down this road in my truck, and they opened fire on us, shelling, and uh, they just about wiped the artillery out. Mm -hmm. That was at Sora. Was it? Yeah. Well, I can't remember that, but I know we had a. Um, we that castle, as you say, up yeah. on the hill. Yeah, we had quite a stoush there. Yeah, that's right. It didn't last all no, that didn't long. Last long but, um, we, were, we went down. That's where old uh, what's his name got hit. Um, Sammy. Oh, yeah. old Sam. What Sam Lee. Say? No, no. Sam the uh, Jew. Oh yeah, yeah. What was his name? Sammy Samuels. Sammy. Oh yeah, yes. That's where he got hit. Did you know he got wounded, old Sammy? That's where he got no. that got wounded. Got a bit of shrapnel in the back no. <coughs> because I, I know I dressed it. Mm. It was down by the railway, a little railway station. Uh, we uh, we had a had a. A spell in Sora. It was great. It was bloody great. I don't remember very much about it. We we rested there, <coughs> and we were in a, a rural area, and we 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 put a tarpaulin up across a ridge pole and then stretched it to our two carriers, and we slept underneath there, and we used to have a a sing-song and drink a bit of vino if it was available while we were resting there. We were there for several days, oh, about a week, ten days, and we were right on the edge of a uh, about a half acre of corn. And so our blokes decided that we'd cook some of this corn up. And so it was suggested that we just go in one track, don't make a whole lot of tracks, just to make it as unobtrusive as possible and take the cobs from the centre of the plantation. So we did that and enjoyed the stuff for four or five nights. And each morning the farmer that owned the area or rented it, he, uh, he used to walk around, he, he was practical, he knew that all soldiers were thieves. So he was very suspicious. And one morning he spotted the track and he went in there and he hadn't gone very far when we heard him telling telling God all about those Kativa bastardos. We knew that Kativa meant thieving, but we didn't know what that other word meant. <laughs> and he was going mad. Uh, and we had uh, Snow Conrad from Tiamuda, from King... Uh, Tamaranui, he, uh, he had helped his sister before the war. They used to have a roadside sale of uh, dressed poultry, apparently, and uh, he'd helped prepare them. So he was quite useful at acquiring uh, uh, Italian poultry, Galena, fowls, there was young... Uh, young geese that were quite nice if they were young and there was guinea fowls that were extra nice and big big bodies that were a lot of eat on them and uh, Snow decided that he'd, uh, he'd see that here 
some poultry for us and I said to him, well, whatever you do, don't leave the, the feathers near us. I said, the first thing in an investigation of poultry is locate the feathers. So we're walking down the bloody track and, and the officers had some tents there and we found uh, the, the farmer and a military police and they found these bloody feathers right, at, right alongside the entrance to one of the officers' tents. Of course, the farmer's doing his bloody nana and he, he yells out at the blokes and they come out of the tent and they're wondering, they didn't know what was going on when, the, when an Italian speaks bloody rapidly and he's doing his bloody, you have no, no show, it doesn't matter how much you can speak of the language, you don't know what it's all about. And we're walking past it and saying, got no bloody time for these bastards that bloody were robbed from these poor bastards that are starving to death and robbing them of food and so forth. There's so many of those little villages yeah, that, yeah, that's right. you know, once we got broke through past Casino yeah, and those, we were sort of getting into easier country and towards the north of Italy um, and there was far fewer decent defensive positions for the Germans. And then we fought up to Florence and San Michele was in, uh, among those places. In this episode of Courage and Valour, you've heard an order of appearance, Harry Hopping, Pat Green, Clem Hollies, Colin Murray and Fred Blank. The next episode of Courage and Valour will be episode 7, Towards Florence. <laughs>